and welcome back again to Come and See Inspirations. My name is John Keeley. Shane Ambrose, of course, is still with us and is on end of the Skype line. And joining us this morning, a very special guest who, who's um, been on the programme a few times, uh, Father Eamon Conway. Good morning to Father Eamon. Good morning, everybody. Thanks, Father Eamon, for joining us. Father Eamon's going to uh, join us this morning specifically to help us to reflect on John Henry Newman, who has been ordained, uh, sorry, who's been canonized this morning uh, in Rome as we speak. So, Father Eamon, uh, John Henry Newman, where would you like to start? I'd like to start, I suppose, a little bit back just in case our, you know, just for our listeners, it might be helpful just to think for a moment about why, why saints at all, why canonize saints. Mm. And it's interesting that Pope Francis, although he's only, uh, you know, a, a pontiff uh, for going on six years, he has actually canonized almost twice as many saints as Pope John Paul II did in his 27-year pontificate. Uh, Pope Francis has actually canonized 838 saints, John Paul II, 482, and then in the interim years, uh, Pope Benedict canonized 45 saints. So let's uh, take it that Pope Francis is big into saints. Hmm. And in uh, a document he brought out last year, called Gaudete et Exultate on the Universal Call to Holiness. And I would certainly encourage our listeners, they'll find it on the internet, hopefully they'll find it in a bookshop, they'll find it on the back of the church. Uh, it's a lovely little call to all of us to realise and recognise our own call to holiness. And uh, in that he talks about, in a sense, the ordinariness of holiness. Uh, you know, that holiness is encountered and experienced in our daily uh, struggles in our daily attempts uh, to be faithful, not just only to God, but also to God in our brother and sister. And just a brief quote, he says, I like to contemplate the holiness present in the patience of God's people, in parents who raise their children with immense love, in men and women who work hard to support their families, in the sick, in elderly religious who never lose their smile, in their daily perseverance, I see the holiness of the church. Uh, very often it is the holiness found in our next-door neighbours, those who, like in, living in our midst, reflect God's presence. And as we contemplate somebody like John Henry Newman, who is distant from us culturally because he you know, was an Englishman, uh, distant from us in time because he lived between 1801 and 1899, distant from us even in the style of his writing at times, even his English, which is beautiful prose, but can be difficult enough to stick with and to follow. Uh, we might feel at some level distant from him, but what I like to, to ponder about Newman and what makes me feel very close to him is his own story of faith and his own story of struggle and how he tried to, uh, I suppose, recognise and how he came to recognise God in the ordinariness of his, of his everyday life. I mean, for example, uh, I, I, we can pick up the story, I suppose, when Newman was a teenager, when he was 15 years of age, away at boarding school, um, spending quite a bit of time during the summer there because his parents had had a financial collapse uh, and it was a difficult time for him to be at home. So he was kept there over the summer. You can imagine, in a sense, no teenager likes to be singled out and treated differently. Uh, but he was left there. And he was a very bright and, you might even say, uh, precocious teenager. And he was reading a lot. And he was reading, uh, as we now know, atheistic philosophy. He was he was testing, uh, in a sense, whatever... Uh, traditional upbringing he had, as teenagers tend to do. But he found these atheistic philosophers wanting. They, they, just, they, they raised all the right questions, but they didn't seem to be providing 
what he saw as credible answers. But at least he was prepared to test his faith. And many, many years later, and I think this is a very important line for us in, in Ireland in, our, in the context of, our, of faith and faith journeys today. Many years later, he wrote, he said, an unquestioned faith among those who are capable of a questioning faith is, to say the least, dangerous and inconsistent. And so, you know, Newman tested his faith. He, he put the tough questions to his own faith. And he found many answers within his tradition lacking, but he also found the answers of atheistic philosophers lacking. And then he had a good mentor, um, a, an Anglican priest who worked uh, at the uh, college where he was, pointed him in the direction of how to read the scriptures. And he gradually went through what can really happen, and we need to believe this can happen for ourselves. He went through a deep personal conversion, one that stuck with him for the rest of his life. And there were various moments, uh, and usually moments of vulnerability, moments of weakness, or moments of faith. So in that time of being away from home and the isolation and the loneliness and the worry and anxiety about his family, he also had ill health. And he went through many different times in his life, in fact, when he suffered from ill health. And these were also moments where there was the invitation to surrender and to trust in God's faith. So that's where I would begin to talk about uh, John Henry Newman, rather than, and we can go on to it, but rather than go on to talk about his great intellectual uh, contribution to the life of the church. Thanks, Father Iman. Shane, would you like to just make a comment on that? Yeah, no, it's 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 an interesting one because I, 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 I as Eamon said, it, I was looking and kind of reading around um, John Henry Newman myself, and I suppose when I said to someone that we were we were interviewing Father Eamon this week about John Henry Newman, the question I got back was, well, why should you know Irish Catholics be interested in English saints? And I said, well, first of all, he's a saint, as you know, as Eamon said for the church, and I said there is an Irish connection after all. You know, I said he, he did help to start the Catholic University in Ireland, which then became UCD. But it, it, Eamon, I suppose there's a couple of things I suppose about the life of John Henry that are are kind of interesting, and I suppose it's his. It's his interaction with the faith and his interrogation of the faith and his journey in faith, which I suppose was the thing that most caught my eye. Because like you said, at 15, engaging and asking the questions, and then you know, he, moving on in terms of he went up to Oxford to, to study there and um, became part of the, 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 Oxford, um, the Oxford movement. But, in, you know, it, and the whole thing that, you know, in terms of his, his interaction with the faith, he was actually quite, um, uh, the way it was described where I read it, he was kind of Calvinistic, actually, in his approach, as he, he was actually ordained for the Anglican Church. That, that's right. He was, and he ministered, uh, he ministered uh, very, very fervently and very enthusiastically, uh, in the Anglican Church. And, uh, you know, the Anglicans can also claim him and to some extent, I suppose, celebrate uh, his uh, accomplishments and celebrate his achievements as well. But at some point, the, the I suppose, the integrity, uh, and I mean that in the technical sense of the wholeness of the Roman Catholic uh, faith, just became utterly compelling for him mm. in terms of, uh, of, of, its, of its rationality. And, and it's truth. And I mean, this, I mean, again, if you want to, if you want to learn something from Newman, you want one takeaway from Newman. It was this utter, unabashed uh, commitment to truth. And, uh, you know, he, he uh, felt obliged in conscience, which is a very, very important word for, for Newman. He felt obliged in conscience 
to follow his the, to follow the truth and be faithful to yeah. the truth. So it, it was a conversion at that level uh, it, that is a takeaway from. So we, when you ask the question, it's a very good question. You know, why why should we be interested in a in, a, in an English saint? Um, first of all, exactly. Well, it's all about us. Actually, it's not yeah. about the saints for Pope Francis. Pope Francis holds these people before us. Uh, simply to to be uh, aids to us on our own path to holiness, and how I find, uh, just to be very personal about it for a moment. I find human. Um, uh, I've had a bit of a health challenge myself in the last few weeks, which thankfully has, has has gone well. But I was trying to reflect on human in that context and pray with him some of his beautiful, beautiful prayers. Uh, you know, he's a, a lovely prayer about how every aspect of our lives. Uh, can be turned to God's service, including our vulnerability and our weakness. So I, I take great uh, uh, enrichment from that. But I also take great enrichment from what you've just been talking about now, mm. which was his his uh, his ruthless, in a sense, pursuit of truth. And it got him into trouble. I mean, again, another takeaway for me was his extraordinary courage in what we would now today call the public square. Mm. He, he, it took a lot out of him, but he did not he did not shirk from from speaking truth in very challenging ways that actually, in one instance, led to a, a major libel case against him, which he lost, actually, um, on a technicality, which can happen. Uh, but, you know, he, he followed the dictates of his conscience. in that, in that and, and that's also what led him to convert from Anglicanism to the Roman Catholic uh, mm. faith. One of the things that I was curious about was, he his was very much, I suppose... Um, how I put this, it was very much an intellectual discovery for him in terms of his faith and one sense. And like, I love that expression you said there, the ruthless pursuit of truth. And I think for me, that's actually something which I hadn't thought about before, because often in modern culture and in modern conversation, you have this false dichotomy that's put out there between faith and reason. In that, you know, to be a person of faith, you know, it somehow implies that you're less logical or you're less rational because you're a person of faith. And I think maybe that's something that maybe John Henry Newman can offer in terms of uh, the modern conversation that we're trying that are trying to have, where you're trying to engage and create a space in the public square for that kind of a conversation. So one of the challenges we face in, in contemporary culture is a, a narrowed understanding of what, what actually we mean by reason. I mean, we may also have a defective understanding of what we mean by faith, which is, which is about trusting fundamentally. It's about letting go into the mystery of God. But when it comes to reason, many people are working out of a, a, very, a very narrow, shrunken version of reason. So for them, something is only reasonable if we can touch it or taste it or smell it. In other words, it's something perceptible to the sense, to the senses. If it's something that seems terribly logical, um, and that's an aspect of of, of truth, of course, uh, uh, you know, uh, logic, uh, uh, faith can never cont- and should not cont- attempt to contradict logic, but we know that there are much, much deeper truths uh, than that. I mean, how do you know, with any degree of certainty, for example, what is rational about love? I mean, certainly it's reasonable to love, but there's more to love than reason. And uh, Pascal, of course, famously said. The heart has reason, but reason does not understand. So we have a very na- narrow understanding of, of reason. And what I what I like about Newman is he challenges that, and that's that's a legacy. And if people are wondering what's a takeaway from Newman, we, we, he he was facing that culture 
uh, the beginnings in the sense of the movement where that reason was being truncated and narrowed. He mm. was challenging that. And through, for example, he said, we do not see the truth at once and make towards it, but we fall upon and try error and find it is not the truth. We grope about by touch, not by sight. And so by a miserable experience, exhaust the possible modes of acting till naught is left but truth remaining. Such is the process by which we succeed. A beautiful line, we walk to heaven backwards. We drive our arrows at a mark and think him most skillful whose shortcomings are the least. So there's nothing irrational, there's nothing unreasonable about groping after the truth. That's 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 the nature of life, actually. Mm, and mm. this so, truth is not to be identified with certainties. Mm. Uh, you can be certain about something, be certainly wrong. Yeah, you know, true, they're true. very different things. So what what I like about Newman too is, and just to, for me, the two aspects hold together. I talked a lot earlier, and I, I do think it's hugely important, it was his own sense of fragility and vulnerability, both because of his family circumstances. For example, his brother became an atheist and never spoke to him. His sister died suddenly, and he grieved for the rest of his life that he never got to say a proper goodbye to her. Um, he lost a lot of his friends uh, when he converted to Catholicism, who didn't really want anything to do with him anymore. He had ill health. I mean, talk about work-life balance something he never understood, really. <laughs> uh, you know, he used to work 17, 18 hours a day, often standing uh, at his desk, uh, and then would crash, uh, you know, would burn out for a while. Um, and yes, somehow God could be at work in this, in this man. And I actually think that the two hold together, that it's in our vulnerability that mm. we're open to perceive what is true in a way that sometimes in our arrogance that we are not. Mm. And Pope Francis, this is why Pope Francis, I think, finds human attractive. Because Pope Francis has always uh, invited us to be in touch with those who are on the margins, to those for, who don't have the luxury of the arrogance of a lot of our discourse mm. uh, about so-called reason, mm. uh, but actually have to live uh, faced with the harsh realities that open them up mm. to what is true and what is just and what mm. is pure in life. There are so many areas that you could talk about with Newman. So, for example, his his discovery of, for example, the church fathers and mothers, and that contribution to his faith journey. There's also you know, his um, his contribution to, for example, the founding of the University College Dublin or the Catholic University of Ireland, and his writings on the whole role and area of education and what is education. But I suppose one other area, which is sometimes where Newman if you like, is brought into, I won't say disrepute, so to speak, but sometimes his views and writings on conscience and freedom of conscience can sometimes um, be, 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 be kind of confused. And I suppose the context for this was the First Vatican Council where papal infallibility was declared. And, of course, there was the whole thing in, in English conversation and English discourse in, in where how could you be loyal to the Pope and, uh, you know, an English, a, a true to the crown or true Englishman. And that whole conversation, and there's a famous letter, I understand, uh, Father Eamon, uh, to the Duke of Norfolk, which deals with this whole area. Yes, I mean, the, the, again, as I said earlier, that uh, Newman was at times to his to his cost, to his personal cost, uh, ruthless when it came to defending truth and and defending the uh, the role of conscience, which was um, completely exonerated in Vatican II, where we are put in indeed Pope Francis and Amoris Laetitia, the joy of love. Uh, very much defends this understanding of conscience to so his conscience as that secret sanctuary uh, within each one of us where we are alone with God and where each one of us is 
judged by nobody and no one person, not even the Pope, not even, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, our understanding of, 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 of anything else other than our, our, uh, by God. And we're before God. So, in a sense, uh, humans. There was no for Newman. There was really no. Uh, he was simply, I suppose, articulating that it's a false contradiction, uh, because of course the Pope, of course, also had to be a defender of conscience and so on. But where people were somehow misunderstanding uh, um, the intention behind papal infallibility, and it was open to misunderstanding. And many, many important uh, people uh, in the Church at the time questioned not necessarily the content of that. Uh, decree on papalology, but the wisdom of it. Uh, so, for example, I, I'm a priest of the Tomb Diocese, and Archbishop McHale, who was a, uh, the Archbishop of Tomb at the time, famously said uh, that he saw absolutely no need for the doctrine of papal infallibility because in his diocese, every parish priest already considers himself infallible. <laughs> That's very good. <laughs> so it wasn't so much the but but what Newman was doing was re recentering that what is at the heart of Catholic. Uh, faith is, uh, is 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 truth and conscience, of which the Pope is also a servant, fundamentally mm. a servant. Uh, can I just bring you back because sure. you mentioned it there, and I think it's very important to the issue of Catholic education. I mean, I I cite Newman all the time, uh, in and his his ideas were quite profound and still are profound. Unfortunately, they've also been hijacked uh, by many people claiming the mantle of Newman. Uh, um, I mean, what Newman was against. Uh, was the what we call the instrumentalization of education, putting education at the service of anything other than the whole uh, total development of the human person. And unfortunately, I mean, that's our big, in my view, our biggest challenge in the Irish educational system at the moment. I mean, you know, where where even we now are, are doing things like computer coding or whatever else in primary school, we're teaching kids uh, about how to be entrepreneurs. You know, rather than open up for the, the joy of education. Uh, you know, I my my. Aunt a few years ago died in her ninetieth uh, year, and she was able, uh, with a little bit of support from, uh, I found the the I forget the name of the textbook uh, that had those lovely beautiful poems. But those beautiful poems she would have learned as a child uh, stood to her uh, poems that understood uh, the reality of death and spoke about the reality of death. You mm. know, um, which many of our listeners may well have learned as well. They're all gone. Many of them are gone, and we have a very functional education system, which is all about outputs. I mean, recently, Archbishop Ron Williams, uh, the Anglican Archbishop, um, now retired of, of Canterbury, he said that in the UK, we have to justify giving kids, uh, hungry kids, poor kids, hungry kids, school dinners, uh, on the basis of, of research that shows that it improves their performance in the classroom. And actually, only a few weeks ago, that was actually proposed here uh, by a government minister. And there was research produced and was discussed in the media here. Uh, if, any, if you look it up, you'll find it. Uh, you know, so this is exactly what Newman was against. He was defending what he called a liberal education, an education which if it was put at the service of anything other than the holistic development of the child, of the young man, of the young woman, mm. uh, was, was a betrayal of what education was really about. Now, he really tried to bring that to bear on the establishment of a Catholic university in Ireland, and it floundered, and it fell, it fell apart. Largely, unfortunately, and this has been very well documented, um, we're talking about 150 years ago, but it's well documented, because the Irish bishops couldn't work together. Oh, there's and a surprise. 
Yeah, well, this is it, and I, you know, I'm afraid. Uh, I'm wondering what the rec- if we if 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 the era before emails and freedom of information and GDPR, 150 years ago, we had excellent records of of the failures and the names attached to the failures of who didn't do what when mm. to get a Catholic university off the ground. What you know, we have very good records now because mm. we are also in danger now of losing. Uh, uh, you know, a, a, a really uh, Catholic presence in our educational system here in Ireland. Father Eamon, I'm afraid <clears throat> I have to bring it, uh, draw this conversation to a close. So as we said today in Rome, uh, Pope, Bene- Pope, Benedict I, Pope Francis is canonizing John Henry Newman, uh, formerly UCD, Connect, or sorry, connected to the Catholic University of Ireland, English saint. Uh, he would be the fifth Londoner to be canonised. And from an Irish perspective, uh, we are being represented actually in Rome this morning by Bishop Brendan Leahy and a number of pilgrims from the Limerick Diocese who will be attending the canonisation ceremony with a number of the other Irish bishops. And they'll be in very good company because I understand that uh, Prince Charles is leading a delegation of, of about 15 people. Uh, from the United Kingdom to mark the occasion uh, today in Rome. So, Father Eamon Conway, it's a pleasure, as always, to have you on the programme. Thank you very much for this morning for joining us and helping us to ex- explore the life and times and uh, the contribution of uh, what who is now Saint John Henry Newman. Thank you very much indeed. Now, uh, Father Conway, uh, you are going to join us. Uh, stay with us for the Gospel Reflection, please. Would you be yeah, able I can to do that? Yeah. Thank you okay. very much, Nate. Okay, so just before we go for our first, uh, our second piece of music, sorry, we'll now take our second piece of music. And of course, this, we can only really play one piece of music Lead Kindly Light by the Arundel Cathedral Choir, written by John Henry Newman. So please join us again in part three, where we read and reflect on the Word of God. Mm-hmm. 